Church, I invite you to take your Bibles and open them with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3, and I would like to begin the reading at verse 13 this morning, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. If you are just joining us today, I just want to sort of bring you up to speed. We are studying through the list of the 12 disciples. And if you've been here for a while or a Sunday or two, you know that uh, each one of these men give us an opportunity to see what it's like when Jesus invades your life. We surrender ourselves to him and he changes us. He transforms us. We've used that, that analogy several times and this morning is no different. At Mark chapter 3, verse 13, listen to what the scripture says. It says, and he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot. Richard Owen was a renowned zoologist who said on more than one occasion that he was grateful for the fact that he lived in a day and time where men could extract from the earth one bone and and not even one entirety of a bone, a bone fragment. And from that small extraction they could with accuracy determine the kind of animal that bone came from. You think about it, they would use modern technology and they would scan the bone, they would do all the forensic analysis and determine the the day and age in which that animal might have lived, but then they would project the image and they would put build a skeleton and put bone and flesh and blood and in some cases even make it animated so that it comes to life. Well, that's exactly what we're going to be a part of this morning. We're going to take one small fragmented insight and we're going to build a life, a person, a personality And I think it is with accuracy that I'm showing you what it may have been like for Jesus to call this man we know as Simon, the second Simon, to follow him as a disciple. Mark's gospel is very plain. It says that Jesus called Simon the zealot to be a disciple. But in order for you to get the impact of the insight this morning that I'm sharing with you, you've got to go back in time with me and sort of relive some moments. Now, it won't take us long to do this, but bear with me, and then I want to make application of this 
historical lesson this morning, which in my mind is fascinating. As a matter of fact, if you ask me to just sort of prioritize the 12 disciples and list them in their matter of influence, the order of influence, and personally the ones that I like the most, I would rank Simon the Zealot somewhere near the top. So hang with me for this moment. First of all, go back and think about what it was like when the Bible came into existence. I know it's hard to imagine what that was like, but here we have all of these ancient men, and I assume some women might have been a part of it, I don't know, but men, who would take the manuscripts of Scripture and piece them together, and then they would walk through the process that we we know as canonizing Scripture. And what that means is there were officials of the church who said this writing is inspired of God. We know there's 66 books in the Bible, right? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. So the canonization process took place over a period of years as these men would come and and evaluate and and in in a very highly scholarized fashion, they would examine one manuscript after another, and then they would all come to a consensus over whether or not that particular manuscript needed to be included in the canon, in the Bible. When Mark's gospel first was evaluated, the multiple copies of his manuscripts came together, and they read here in Mark chapter 3, where the names of the disciples were listed. What they read was not Simon the Zealot. What they read was Simon Cana. Now that that is just a a, a plain transliteration of what they read. We might call it K-A-N-A, Simon Cana. And they wondered, who is this man? What is this designation? And it was consistent from one manuscript to another. What does it mean for him to be Simon Cana? And for a long time, there was a mystery behind this Simon. They posed some possibilities. Somebody said, well, I I think the writer was trying to tell us he was from Canaan. Canaan. And so they, 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 they pursued that idea for a few minutes. Well, we know about Canaan, right? It's an Old Testament designation of what? The promised land. When Moses went back and delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt, he was leading them to Canaan. The land flowing with milk and honey, the, the, ultimately the land of Israel as we know it today. But those Bible scholars talked about that and said, no, that's, too, that's, that's like saying Bill from Mississippi. I mean, it's too large an area. There, there are too many. Which, by the way, did you know that since 1999, the name William is the most favored name for boys born in Mississippi? Did you know that? Well, now, my name is not William. So you put William with Bill, you've got a very common name for male children in Mississippi. Now that's useless information, but you ought to know by now I am full of useless information. (laughs) Right? This idea that he was Simon from Canaan, that's like Jim from Tennessee or James from Arkansas. How can you, how can you, what's significant about that? Surely there were many Simons in Judah, in the south, in Israel, in the north. I mean, if you put those together, this, this is not accurate, they would say. 
Then somebody came along and said, oh no. Notice that the majority of the disciples that Jesus called, we believe, were from Galilee. And we know that Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding. Where? In Cana of Galilee. And so they begin to pursue that idea. Is it possible that this man Simon was from Cana in Galilee and there was one either possibility that it was in Simon's house that the wedding took place where Jesus turned the water into wine? You remember that was his first miracle. So they begin to talk to people from Cana. This is, in my mind, a layman's version of how it happened. And the oral tradition, as history was not recorded in print, it was just talked about and shared from one generation to the next. But as far back as they could go, they had no semblance of this idea that there was a prominent man named Simon from Cana in Galilee. So they put that view aside and said, what in the world does this mean? And after much debate, finally, somebody came along and said, guys, I think we're missing it. We're reading it for some designation of a location, but it means literally what it says. Do you know what the word kana means in the Greek? It means white hot. Mark was revealing that this Simon was a man Hot. Hey, have you ever taken charcoal and lit it to maybe cook a hamburger? How many times on Sunday morning do we talk about food, right? And, and, and so you're, and you notice the coals there turn an ashen gray, but as they become at the peak of their uh, temperature, they are white hot. That's exactly what the word kana refers to. Simon, the white hot man. What, what does that mean? Then they realized that this may have been the way that God was protecting Simon's identity as long as he was alive. Manuscripts would have been written probably while he was still alive so that no one would associate him in a way that would be detrimental to him or even to his family. And then they realized, ah, this was a designation of or a description of the zealot movement. And so then they said, this is exactly who he is because there was much to be known about a man named Simon who was influential in the zealot movement. Even though the people had, did not know him personally, they knew about him. So now we've got to answer the question, well, what was the zealot movement? You've heard a little bit about it when we talked about James, the son of Alphaeus, because the last four men in the listings of the 12 disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke were believed to have been a part of the zealot movement. Well, if a third of the disciples were a part of that group, we ought to know what that group stood for and why was it formed. Go back with me in time once again to 37 B.C. when Herod the Great rose to power. Herod the Great was referred to by many historians, listen to this now, as a diabolical genius. I don't know about you, but you put those two terms side by side, they're not very complimentary. Now, genius I like, but diabolical, that means evil, devilish. What in the world does it mean that he was a diabolical demon, an evil demon, a genius? What does it mean? Well, Herod the Great, who was not a Jew, we know, 
befriended the Jews. And as a leader of Rome and a representative of Rome, he began to just sort of filter and just lay aside so many of the strict restrictions that were placed on the Jews. And, and he, he allowed them to worship in the ways that they wanted to worship that Rome until that point wouldn't allow them to do. He took away some of the taxation. Now, I don't know about you, but anybody in government who takes away taxation, I sort of, I'll, I'll listen to what they have to say, won't you, for a little while. Hmm? So he took away some of the taxation. Then he began to invest in the Jews. And do you know what he did? The first thing he did is he put a seaport in Caesarea. I've seen that seaport. Some of you may have been to Israel. You may have seen that seaport. Herod the Great put that seaport in place. It became a place of industry and commerce, a place where the Jews would actually profit from the trade and the sale of merchants who would come to that port. In addition to Caesarea, he built a fortress known as Masada. That's going to come into play in just a moment. Masada was nothing more than a retreat area for the king, for royalty, but he allowed some of the Jews to come. And so they would come and actually enjoy a time away from home and family and their community just to have a time of retreat at Masada. Fast forward from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., Herod the Great died. He, his influence was taken away. He had three sons who were left to assume his leadership. Archelaus, we know, was proven unfit. Philip rose to power. And then Herod Antipas also came into play. Herod Antipas was the one who eventually would rule with Jesus along with Pilate that he was to be crucified. So we had Philip and Herod Antipas, and what did they do? They put back all the taxation on the Jews. They put all the restrictions back on the Jews, and they enforced all of the things that their father had taken away from Rome. Well, when that happened, the Jews revolted. Some of you may have read about the Maccabean revolt that took place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Judas was the leader of that group, and the the zealot movement was an offshoot and a byproduct of the Maccabean revolt. People began to meet together and pray and said, God, we are your chosen people. If we are to be blessed and honored by you, then why are we so oppressed? Why, are the, why do the Romans hate us? How long will you allow us to suffer under, that hand, under their hand? And the zealots began to pray that God would overthrow the Roman government. Now, that, that was fine as long as they were praying, but somewhere along the way, over time, their spiritual aspirations were overtaken by their political motivations. And do you know what they began to do? They began to, they, they said, Lord, if you're not going to answer our prayers, we'll just take these matters into our own hands. You know what, folks? I've discovered that's the same thing I do in my life. When I'm praying and I'm asking God for something and I don't understand why he's delaying, and sometimes I say, well, well maybe I just need to go on. Well, ask Abraham and Sarah how that turned out. Not too well, did it? They began to put together a team of men who were mercenaries. They were called the Sakari. 
because of the dagger that they took with them, which was called a sakar. They, they put it in their belt under their coat. It was a concealed weapon. And when they went out in public, they would begin to strategize and figure out what prominent leader from Rome might be in the group and they would position themselves so that at the appropriate time they would slip the dagger in his back and they would pierce the kidney and the lungs and they would kill him. They would murder him. And when they saw some hint of success with this, their popularity began to rise. People began to speculate how many people were a part of the zealot movement. And who are they? And that's where the name Simon began to be just talked about and mentioned and possibility. And what I'm showing you is that somewhere along the way, Jesus said to him along with three other men who are part of that movement, I want you to follow me. Now I want, to, I want you to listen very carefully to how the zealot movement ended because it speaks to their fanaticism. L listen carefully. This is taken from Josephus the historian. And if you've ever read Josephus, you know that a lot of what he wrote you can't believe because he would embellish stories. He was a Baptist preacher. And he would quote things that you would say, oh, I don't know about that. And you would find other places. No, that's not accurate. That's not really the way it is. Listen, listen to what it says. He says, Judas the Galilean was the true author of the fourth act of Jewish philosophy, the zealot movement. Remember, I talked about Judas Maccabeus being the part of the Maccabean revolt and then the zealot movement came about. He said, they have an inviolable attachment to liberty, which is freedom, and say that God is their only Lord. The reason the zealots had such a problem with Rome was because that the Caesars of Rome ruled over them as their Lord. Then listen to what he says. They do not mind dying any kind of death, and they do not listen to the counsel of kindred or friends. Nor can any such fear cause them to say that any man is their Lord. And since this immovable resolution of theirs is known to a great many, I shall not speak any longer about the matter, for I'm not afraid that anything I've said about them will be disbelieved. Rather, I fear that what I've said will always fall short of the resolution they exhibit when exposed to pain and suffering. You realize what Josephus is saying here? He's saying, I realize that in the past I've sort of blown some things out of proportion, but I'm telling you, I can't blow this out of proportion. These folks are crazy. They're fanatics. Now, now listen to what he says. Nothing shows the fanaticism of the movement more than the incident in which the last of them finally perished. When Jerusalem fell, some strongholds did not surrender. The last of them included Masada. Commanded by Eliezer, listen to this now. The group stood their ground until it was clear that all hope for survival was gone. Eliezer rose to address the men and gave a flaming speech in which he urged them to slaughter their own wives and children and then to commit suicide. And they took him at his word. They tenderly embraced their families, then began their bloody work. 960 perished at Masada. Only five children and two women escaped. I cannot read that story, but what I don't think about Jim Jones of Ghana or David Koresh in Waco. A group of people who started with 
maybe pure motives, the zealots I'm talking about, but allowed their feelings to overtake any kind of rationale or reason and came to a point where they believed that the taking of their own lives, even the lives of innocent children, were better than remaining alive. I think most of us in this room realize just how relevant this is. Because in our lifetime and in our generation, we've come to understand that every now and then history presents itself with a story of such people who believe that death is better than life. Ask those who were at Pearl Harbor. Ask those who were in New York with the Twin Towers with the crashing of the planes in the Pentagon, in Yorkstown, Pennsylvania. We know that today there are still people who say it's better to die than it is to live, and we die with honor when we kill the innocent. You understand where I'm coming from? That's exactly what this group came to be. And yet here it is. Jesus said to four of these men, follow me. Now I want to say very carefully this morning that there is absolutely nowhere in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, certainly not in the teachings of Jesus that would condone such violent acts. Nowhere, not one scintilla of evidence in all of the Bible. But I want to remind you folks, that history has proven itself over and over and over and over again that enemies swap vices. And if we're not careful, there could come a day where we become them. You say, boy, that's harsh. Bill, I can't even believe you say that. It's a word of caution. But the preaching point is actually the point of what happened in the life of Simon. Because when you allow Jesus Christ to come into your heart and into your life and His nature overtakes your nature, then your desires and your preferences and your will are all put aside so that He might reign preeminent in your life. Jesus saw these men who were committed to something higher and greater than themselves and he said, oh, my calling is that and my calling is so much better than that calling that you're praying about. To overthrow the Roman government? I'm not going to overthrow the Roman government, Jesus might say. I'm going to overthrow the world. His desire is that you and I put aside our own desires and feelings so that we might be passionate about Him and committed to Him. This morning on the radio as I was driving up the highway, a, a hymn came on the, on the radio and I began to listen and I began to sing along with it. And it's that much favored hymn that we've sung many times since I've been with you. And it is that hymn, I surrender all, I surrender all. And there's one little phrase that just sort of stood out as I began to listen to that hymn. And the phrase was that in your presence daily I will live. And that is the theme of this message of allowing Jesus Christ 
to be... Listen, folks, we get passionate, we get lathered up, we get excited about so many things in this world. I want to ask you a question. How passionate are you about Jesus? Don't you think if we were a little more excited about Jesus, more people would be saved? The rest of the world would hear the gospel? Churches wouldn't be in decline? Churches certainly wouldn't be concerned about money. I'm here to tell you that if Jesus Christ reigned supreme in our life, our lives would be totally different. My life included. Years ago, I ran across a poem. At least that's the way it was couched as it was presented. And at first it was presented as the words of a preacher that he penned the night before he would die. He, he was in a country where the gospel was not tolerated. And they put him in prison and then they told him they were going to execute him and kill him. And he penned these words. Now I later learned that that was a fabrication. That was not true. And for a long time I, I wouldn't share what I'm about to share with you. Because I said it, it was presented as something that it was not and so forth. But, but then I went back and read the words and I said you know. Even though in that context, it may not have been written. Nevertheless, these words were written. And they are inspiring. And they are descriptive of what I think Jesus Christ is asking of you and me. And I want you to listen to it. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, slow down, step down, or be still. My past is redeemed and my present makes sense. And my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living and sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams and tame visions, mundane talking or cheap giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, positions, promotions, plaudits or popularity. I do not have the right to be praised, topped, recognized, regarded or rewarded. I now lean by presence, live by faith, love by patience. I'm lifted by prayer. And I labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven and my road is narrow. My companions are few, but my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate in the table of the enemy, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have preached up, prayed up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he he comes, preach till all know, and give till I drop. And when he comes to claim his own, he'll have no trouble recognizing me. Lord, teach me to pursue your goals for my life, even in the face of rejection. I've been preaching since I was 16 years old. Early on, I was heavily influenced by the writings and the preaching of none other than Charles Spurgeon. At some point along the way, my wife asked me, she said, can you preach a sermon without quoting Charles Spurgeon? 
said, I don't know, but I'll try. And so intentionally, I said about, for five years, at least I know, I did not quote Charles Spurgeon. One of my favorite stories of Charles Spurgeon is a time that a man came to see him and wanted to know, Charles, what is the secret of your church and your church growth? And Spurgeon said, I just believe that if you put a man behind the pulpit, And he is blazing with the fire of the Holy Spirit. That people will come watch him burn. I get it, folks. I understand that I'm I'm not all there is. I'm animated, I'm loud, I move about, but every prayer of every Sunday is God may you light a fire in me that's contagious. but it's got to start with me. How willing are you to let your life to be consumed by the power and presence of Jesus Christ? For me, it's a daily struggle. But a prayer I will not quit praying. May we be a people on fire for him. Stand with me this morning, will you? Father, I pray that you would take this message and use it and apply it as only you can. Somehow, some way, I pray that you would increase our capacity to see you, to love you, to know you, and to serve you more in a much greater way. Would you help us to measure our own passion and potential, our own interest in kingdom work? And Lord, I pray that you would excite us and motivate us to be the individual lanterns and torches that you need us to be. so that we might attract and affect so many others around us. But Lord, it's all for your sake and for your glory. Help us to do that. Help us to do that in a tempered sort of way and in a loving, Christ-like sort of way. Father, we give this invitation today on your behalf and pray that if there is any person here who desires to make public their commitment to you, let them come. 
whether it's coming by profession of faith and a desire to follow Jesus in baptism or Christian or Christian family looking for a church home, let us respond in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name for his sake.